Luke chapter 20, verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine, to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyards to others. When they heard it, they say, May it never be. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, 
But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed us in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this passage. I pray that you would help us now as we work our way through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a lot of text. I'm like, out of breath, out of reading all of that. It took a while to get through. Um, The story fits together in one piece. When I was in the, the SEAL teams, or if you even saw the movie that just came out, I forget the name of it. Whenever there's any sort of rescue um, of a hostage, any sort of uh, rescue of anybody, like a a lost person, or if you have to communicate with outside support, there's a process of authenticating that the person that you're communicating with or grabbing is the right person. And so, and it's called authentication. It's It's a perfect way to authenticate somebody. I don't make this stuff up. It just... Just makes sense. And so when you authenticate somebody, if I was rescuing somebody, you you'd grab the person, you get a hold of them, and you say, "Okay, what was your favorite animal's name when you were a kid?" And they say, "Oh, Daisy." Okay, perfect. You're the right person. What's your mother's maiden name? Oh, Smith. You'd ask them a series of questions that they submitted beforehand that they knew if they were in this situation that they would give to you so that you could verify that they're who they are. In other situations, if you need help, one of the most catastrophic events in Special Forces history happened to SEALs in Panama, like I think it was in the 80s. Trying to go after Noriega, a bunch of SEALs got, we were sabotaged and we lost a huge contingency of SEALs. We were calling out for help over the radio. There was a battalion of rangers ready to come in and take over the airport. But when they were authenticating the SEAL teams, the SEAL teams didn't have the right verbiage to give to them because Army doesn't talk to Navy and vice versa. That was then. Everything's changed so that when they challenge, hey, we want to make sure that the person asking for help is who they say and we're not getting into a sabotage. I bring this up because in this story, Jesus has entered into the temple. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at the triumphal entry. He's in the temple and he begins teaching. And he's challenged. He receives three challenges in our story today. He gets a personal attack against his authority. He gets a personal attack, like a political attack about Caesar. And then finally, he gets in a theological attack. These are all questions. They're trying to authenticate him to see who he is. Jesus responds perfectly. He confirms that he is indeed the Messiah. But as they authenticate him, we see that they were not authenticating him to believe in him. They only wanted to sabotage him. There was no uh, true heart in their 
they're authenticating him. So we're going to look at the first story here, like the first sort of attack, his personal attack. And in chapter 20, verse 1, we read, On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? So Jesus is doing these things. What are the things he's doing? Well, if we back up to chapter 19, you guys will all remember at the very end of the triumphal entry as he enters into the temple, he sees that the place of prayer had been turned into a place of of like highway robbery where they're selling stuff for worship. He kicks the tables. He runs them out of the temple. And at the very last verse of chapter 19, we read, and they could not find anything that they might do. Those are the Pharisees and scribes who are angry at Jesus for, for doing this. For all of the people were hanging on to every word that he said. So he's teaching. He's preaching the gospel, as chapter 20 says. And I have this picture. This would have been the temple during Jesus' age. This actually, the center portion, is what is actually the temple. Everything else around it is the temple courts. This picture does not do it justice. The center section, to put it into size scale, long ways, it would be longer than two football fields in the United States. So this thing is gigantic. I mean, huge. Hundreds and thousands, I don't know, don't quote me on that, but a lot of people. Think like Times Square on New Year's Eve, crowded with people from all over the world to come celebrate the Passover, would have been squished in there. Jesus came down the hill. He walked into the temple. He starts clearing people out of the temple, and he starts teaching. He's got crowds of people hanging on every word, listening to him. To teach in the temple, you had to have been basically certified in the temple that you were cleared by a rabbi. Hey, that this guy's credentials are good, that they're up to par, he can teach here. So the people come to Jesus and they say, the scribes and the, the, the Pharisees, whose authority are you teaching on? We're looking through our manuscripts of people that are authorized to teach here. We don't see your name here anywhere. We remember you when you were 12. You shamed us all at the Passover. 20 years has passed, but we haven't forgotten. What are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Whose authority are you, are you doing this by? And the essence of this whole thing is the resistance of Jesus' authority. That nobody here wants to submit to his authority. And so Jesus responds in verse 3 in a very typical Hebrew way that when rabbis sparred with one another, they would often go back and forth through questions. And so they have a question for him. Whose authority are you teaching under? Jesus says, fine, I will, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 24, Matthew tells the same story. And in that passage, Jesus says, you answer my question, and then I'll tell you whose authority I teach under. So Jesus is going to ask them a question, they're supposed to respond, and then he he would respond to them with his answer. Luke leaves that out. So verse 4, Jesus' question. Okay, you want to know whose authority I teach under? First, answer me this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? 
Now, remember, if we were to go back to Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, six months older than him. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets that walks out onto the pages of the New Testament. And he begins with this, prepare the way for the Messiah. Be baptized for the remission of sins. When Jesus comes to get baptized, John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie your shoe or your sandal or whatever, your flip-flop. I, I, I don't wear sandals. I wear re-flip-flops when I'm not working. So uh, there's nothing to unstrap. But Jesus says, no, you've got to baptize me. So Jesus is baptized. And as he comes up from the water, what happens? The dove comes down from heaven. The voice of God speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist, his head was cut off long before the story happened. And Jesus has a simple question. Now, their response in verses 5 through 7 cracked me up. I think I watched too many game shows as a kid. Because the only thing I see here is the family feud. You guys know the family feud. The one family answers their questions, but they're still like the three top answers remain. But they've had three strikes. And now the other family, they just got to answer one answer that gets higher than the other answer. And so the whole family gets together and they start brainstorming. And finally, somebody in the family says, I like this answer. And they all buy in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great. That's a great answer. And he says, whatever the guy's name is, give me this. And they'll either get the or the thing. This is what happens here. They're not playing the family feud, but that's what I see. Verse 5. They reasoned amongst themselves, saying, so they're in their huddle, like, okay, Jesus, well, give us a second. They're all around huddled up. Okay. If we say from heaven... So if we say that John's a Baptist, his authority is from heaven, he's going to say, why did you not believe him? Oh, so that's kind of a problem. You'll remember if you go back to that story, John the Baptist is baptizing all of these people. The Pharisees, everybody heard, who's this crazy guy? He's got dreadlocks. He's got uh, camel cloth or whatever, like drab. He's, He's eating crickets and honey. He's a weirdo. He's calling people out openly for their sin. He calls out Herod, one of the most ruthless people, for being in an inappropriate relationship with his brother's wife. But Herod was like, man, I'm kind of intrigued by this guy. I want to hear him. I like It's kind of cool. And so there's John the Baptist in the Jordan River dunking people. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees and scribes show up to the shoreline, not to be baptized, but to check him out. And John the Baptist calls out to them, who warned you, you brood of vipers? He totally, I love the guy. He just doesn't hold punches. He starts just like harassing them. So they publicly rejected John's baptism. And so now here they are a couple of years later going, if we say his authority was from heaven, Jesus' response is, well, if, he's, if he was of the Lord, then why in the world did you reject him? And then they got a problem. So let's kind of roll through our answers again. Verse 6. They say, but if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. John the Baptist had a huge following. 
as we get into Acts and, and the early church begins to go out to share about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they would reach a certain town. They reached one town. I forget which town it was off the top of my head. If I was more prepared, I would have looked it up between services and given it to you. But I didn't. They get there and they say, well, you've been baptized. They say, well, what baptism did you receive? They're like the baptism of John. And they're like, wait a minute. Years have elapsed. You don't know. Ephesus, one of my favorite books of the Bible. And there they, they said, no, we don't know about this Jesus. Tell us about him. They said, yeah, the Messiah came. He was dead. He was crucified, buried, rose again. And you're supposed to be baptized in his name. They say, okay, this is great news. So they're baptized. The point is that John the Baptist was very popular even after his death. And so they are like, if we say that his authority was from God, well, then he's going to ask us, and why weren't you dunked? Like, why did you not submit to him? That's no good. But if we say of men, they're going to kill us because he, they believe he's actually a prophet. So somebody says, we're going to tell him that we don't know. Literally, they say, that you can't know. In verse 7, so they answered that they did not know, literally could not know where it came from. Jesus looks at them and says, fine. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, okay, that's fine. You don't answer my question. I'm not going to answer your question. We're going to move on. And he's going to move on to tell this parable of this vineyard. He's speaking against them. I want to give you the end of the story before we work our way through it. Those that hear Jesus' parable, they understood clearly what he was saying. And in this parable, we're going to be introduced to a man that buys a plot of land or he plants a vineyard, a bunch of plants that grow grapes, a vineyard. He goes away. He's going to leave for a long time. He's going to hire some people to take care of his vineyard to grow the grapes. The grapes finally show up, and he's going to send a slave to go get his grapes. They reject him, his grapes. Then he sends a second, he sends a third. They beat him up, they send him away. Finally, he sends his son. They kill his son, thinking they're going to get the inheritance. These people, the man in the story, the owner of the land, this is God the Father. The land is Israel. The vine dressers the people who cared for the vines are the, the Israel, Israel's leaders, the, the, the uh, Sanhedrin, the, the religious leaders that were there to care for Israel, God's chosen people. The slaves that come through and are beaten up are the prophets that were continually rejected by Israel. The son is Jesus. And it's very clear in the story, but let's work through here. So verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, so he's speaking of God creating Israel, and rented it out to the vine growers that he, God, entrusted Israel to the leadership of the, the priests to care for and to lead Israel. And he went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. His grapes came in. They're juicy, they're sweet, they're crunchy at this stage. You know, when grapes are the best. I love grapes. I really do. Big, big fan of grapes. So, like, I understand this guy's desire for wanting his grapes. 
He only wants a few grapes, not all of the grapes. So he sends a slave to go get some of the grapes. And when the slave gets there, the vine growers beat him and set him away empty-handed. So the slave guy goes, hey, the owner wants some grapes. Could I, I got my clippers. I'm just going to clip a few bags. And they say, get out of here. They beat him up and they send him away. The guy goes back to the master and says, I'm sorry, I tried. Check out my two black eyes, skinned elbows. They thrashed me. I couldn't get any grapes. Sorry. So the owner says, I'm going to send a second guy. Verse 11. So he sent another slave and they beat him also. And they added that they treated him shamefully. So that they not only beat him up, but then they brought shame to him, which I don't know exactly how that would work out. But then they sent him away. No grapes. Second guy goes to the owner. I'm sorry. They beat me up too. And they shame me. Verse 12, number three guy, he proceeded to send a third, and this one also. They wounded and cast out. No grapes for the owner of the vineyard. Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And that day, a father that had a son, the son carried the identical authority to the father. So if the son shows up to the property, it's as if the father is there himself. So this is why if I send my son, certainly they're going to respect the son and do what he says and give me my, my grapes. And so the son came. Verse 14, but when the vine growers saw him, the son, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. They think to themselves, oh, the son's coming now. The dad must have died. And so the son's coming to get it as inheritance. And if we kill him, then all of this is ours. Because literally the possession is nine-tenths of the law. Like literally. Not just a saying that if you have somebody else's stuff and it becomes yours, you know. Like literally, well, if we kill him, then this is ours. He will, the owner hasn't come for long enough and legally the deed will be transferred to us. Let us kill him so the inheritance will be ours. Verse 15, so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So Jesus, in the midst of this parable, the son is just killed. He steps out of it and he looks to the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, what will the owner do to them at this point? So he's, he's painted his picture. What will they do? Jesus answers his question. Verse 16. He will come and he will de destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. So Jesus is like, he's speaking forward. He knows this is his last working day in the Passion Week. He knows that he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to be buried, that he's going to raise again. And the church is ultimately going to end up in the, in the Gentiles' hands. This isn't replacement theology, meaning that the church has become Israel. God is not done with Israel. But he gives them this warning. And when they heard it, they knew exactly what he was saying. We might go, man, Gunnar, you're kind of making a strep there. You're talking about grapes and vines and what do you, like, what does this have to do with Israel? But look how they, the they here is the scribes of the Pharisees. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. They knew clearly what he was saying. And they were angry. And Jesus looked at them and he asked them another question. He said, what then is this that is written? 
He's going to ask him a question from the scriptures. It's the Passover. It's, it's a huge celebration. One of the main psalms that was sung during the Passover was Psalm 118. As Jesus is going down the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they get the donkey, and they lay the coats, and they're singing these praises, what they're singing is Psalm 118. And the Pharisees, when they heard it, they tell Jesus, you better shut up your disciples because this is blasphemy. They're worshiping you as God. They're worshiping you as Messiah by singing Psalm 118. You better shut them out. And Jesus looks at them and says, if I shut them up, even these rocks will cry out that I am the Messiah. They will worship me through Psalm 118. And so this psalm that was sung all through the Passover, the Passover looking forward to the Messiah Jesus asks them a question. Well, can you guys interpret this passage for me? What does Psalm 118 mean when it says the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? Which that verse would be a pillar in the early church looking back to Psalm 118. Jesus says, well, what's it mean then? And Jesus answers his own question. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on But on whomever it falls, it'll scatter him like dust. What's he saying? He's going back to verse 16 about the father or the owner of the vineyard coming back after the son has been killed. And he says he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. There's a severe warning that Jesus gives here. There's dire consequences for rejecting Or disobeying Christ. Like there's no way around it. And Jesus lays this out clearly before them. He says, listen, this verse says. Like it's going to destroy those who reject him. Because he's the rock. And the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him. We don't like what you're saying. We're going to grab hold of you. We're going to drag you out of the temple. We're going to do you in. They ultimately wanted to kill him. And they would succeed in a matter of about four days. Or less than that, actually. They tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people. See, this is the problem. They wanted to arrest him. But all of these people from 1948 that are hanging on every word that he said, that they bought in that he was indeed the Messiah, and they were worshiping him and following him, they feared the people, for they understood. These people understood The ones that were following Jesus, they understood that Jesus spoke the parable against the scribes and the Pharisees, the leader of the temple. It was clear to everybody there. They're like, he just these are the the, these are the, the heavy hitters. These guys run and own the temple. And Jesus just what's going to happen here? They're going to kill him. But they understood that if he if they killed Jesus, There would be an outcry. There would be a riot in the city. And Rome gave them freedom to practice their religion so long as there was no out, like, what do you call it, riots. And this would have have been a total uprising, and Rome would have come down and squashed them. And so their hands are really tied here. Verse 20, and so they come up with another plan. So they watched him. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. See, the Jewish people, 
They had a lot of freedom to practice their own laws. They were allowed to give 39 lashes. You could do 40 lashes, but you'd have to back it up one so that you didn't accidentally kill somebody. They were not allowed to, to take away people's life. They didn't have the authority to do capital punishment. However, the governor under Rome, he could. And so they have their little huddle going. They're like, man, this guy's good. This guy's good. How are we going to get him? How are we going to get him? Oh, you two. He's never seen you two guys before. So you sneak in there as like you're one of his followers and set him up in a political trap. And when he gives in and he steps up over this perfect ploy, we're going to give him over to the governor and he'll be killed that way. This is genius. All right, boys, go in. We're going to stand on the other side of the temple. So it's very apparent that we're not involved in all of this. We're going to back away. You guys go in covertly. And they send in Eddie Haskell. (laughs) They question him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. You're the man. You're awesome. You totally know everything. We're so glad to sit under your teaching and you're just, it's duplicity. It's a big, they're Eddie Haskell. Oh, yes, Mrs. Cleaver, we love you. We're good kids. And when they're away, they get in all this trouble. So they're saying all this stuff to Jesus like, oh, you're an amazing teacher. And because you're so amazing, we have a question for you. And their question comes on our tax day, which I find absolutely hilarious. But don't worry, your taxes aren't due today. There's an extension because tax day fell on Sunday or so it's on Tuesday And their question is, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, for us, we think, what's the big deal here? Like, what's the big deal in this question? This is a highly explosive political question. See, if he says, yes, it's lawful for you to pay taxes to Caesar, there would have been outrage. They hated Caesar. They hated tax collectors. If you were a Jewish person and you had a son or a brother or a grandson that became a tax collector, you were disowned from the family. You were a traitor to Israel. And they would extort people. It was even written in the Jewish law that you didn't have to tell the truth to tax collectors. You were allowed to lie to them. And so if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, there's going to be this outrage from the Jewish people that he's under their authority. He doesn't care about Israel. He's given into them. Our Messiah is going to come and he's going to come with an iron fist and he's going to reign and Rome is going to be destroyed as Daniel prophesied. No way is the Messiah coming in all week and submitting to Rome. They wanted Like as the triumphal entry, they're swinging palm branches and we celebrate Palm Sunday in most churches. And I don't think it's necessarily a great idea. The palm branches, that was Israel's flag. It would be like us waving our American flags. They wanted their freedom, their independence. But if Jesus says, no, nope, we're under God's authority. We don't care about Caesar we don't pay any taxes. Ignore him. But what are they going to do? Caesar, 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 we have him on record. Governor, we have him on record. He's causing rebellion. 
He doesn't want to submit to you, arrest him, execute him. He's trying to start riots. They think that they got him. There's no good answer. The problem is, is they're wrestling with God. And he's good. <laughs> His response is amazing. Verse 23, but he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. So right off the bat here, he says, well, does anybody have a denarius here? Do you have one of his coins? And certainly they would say, oh, yeah, we have, we have his coins. And if you had his coins, that meant you were submitting to him and you were under his authority. Jesus doesn't go into all of this, but they were under his dominion already. They're talking a big game, but they're submitting to him. And then he says, oh, you guys have the coins. Toss me a coin. Jesus doesn't have one of his coins. Tosses him his coins. He looks at the coin. And notice what he says. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? So he's looking at the coin. He sees a picture of Caesar. There's the picture and there's the inscription. Now, what does the inscription say? The inscription says something along the lines of worship Caesar as God. He's Lord over all. So when he wanted, it was not just about, this is, this is not just about, you know, like having a, a picture of a dead president. This is Caesar's face and he's worshiped as God. And so then they answer. And they said, Caesar's. And he said to him, them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Hey, if that's Caesar's with his coin and it says Caesar's God, go ahead and give it to him. Pay your taxes. Who cares? Pay your taxes, people. But, like, we might not like taxes. <laughs> and the laws set up so that they're not loopholes. They're laws. So I'm all for digging out the law and trying to pay as little tax as you possibly can. But you're obeying the law. But the, at the end of the day, you don't cheat on your taxes. And you submit to the authorities. And you render under Caesar. But then the part that's often glazed over. See, Jesus doesn't stop there. So render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the next thing he says, and to God, the things that are God. Hmm. What's he mean there? What, what things have God's picture and God's inscription on? Humans. We are created in the likeness and the image of God. We bear his image. We're set apart from all of creation. And he says, Give Caesar the things that are hymns, but give God your lives. Because God created you in his image. He loves you. He, he's going to die for you. The guy he's speaking, Jesus, being God, is about to give his life for them. Give your lives to him. But we gloss over that part. In verse 26, and they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. That's how people deal with Jesus. <laughs> they, start, they start wrestling with him. Oh, tell us your authority. Oh, we're going to set you up in this trap. And, and the thing that like boggles my, my mind is I look at this, and it says that they were absolutely amazed. As they tried to authenticate his claims of being God, of being the Messiah, they're amazed. They can't say anything else. But do they bow down and worship him? No, they reject him. And it's so easy for us to point our fingers at him. But to you, Christian, to me, Christian, 
the one who professes Christ in my own life? In how many other ways do I reject him? Do I look at, oh, you say this to me, yet I reject your authority in my life because I have my own will. And I want to do what I want when I want to do it. And I want to have fun. And there's no telling me what I want to do. But your Lord, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Now, the Sadducees are going to come up on scene. There's the Pharisees and scribes. They're, they're, the, they're the religious conservative ones. They, they weren't the extremists. Those were the other guys, the, um, the zealots. They were like the total hardcore. John the Baptist was likely a zealot. Hardcore. Pharisees, scribes are the conservative ones. And then you have the Sadducees, which were the, the, the religious liberals of the day. They were. I'm not, I mean, it's, it's, it's true. Now, the, now, there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Now, if you've walked in Christian circles for any length of time, you've heard, why are they sad? They're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. Came from this verse. So they don't believe in the resurrection. They're speaking to the resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection. They're speaking to him. He's going to be resurrected in less than a week. They're going to challenge him on the resurrection. But when I look at their statement, look what it says. Verse 28, and they question him saying, teacher, Moses wrote us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up the children to his brother. If you know anything about Ruth, this is the story of Ruth. Her husband died. She meets a good looking man named Boaz. They want to get married. Boaz says, I can't marry you because there are people closer to you that have the, the right to marry you first. So we've got to go down to the city gate. I've got to basically, you know, the story gets blurry in my mind about there, but he got the authority. The guy took off his shoes somewhere in there, you know, like, so I forget exactly how the shoe ties in right now. It's been a while. But he basically gets the approval to marry Ruth and to become the, the kin that takes her over to carry on the family line. By Jesus' day, this wasn't something they did anymore. It was no longer practiced as it was during Ruth's day. And so the Sadducees, the, these that did not believe in the resurrection, and the whole purpose of this section is about the resurrection. They say, listen, Moses, who they venerated, Moses was the man. They said, Moses wrote for us that a man's brother dies, having a wife, he's childless. A brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, they take a biblical truth, something that was stated there. And then we see just foolishness. What I see in their response, I think Anna said this was like Facebook of the first century. This is like the gossip of them. They'd had put everything together. They kind of found their trap. And this is when we fall into the trap of like we get our one or two verses in the Bible and we use it as like a weapon to tear down people's theologies and to, to backbite one another. We get in these religious arguments. You pull like one verse out and you say, well, the Bible says this, so you're wrong. It's no longer, you know, this is the word of God. This is God's revelation to us. We bow before it and it speaks to us. And when I run into a difficult passage, the issue isn't who I have to guard myself on this because, you know, I told you guys about how I feel about soccer and like I'm like real competitive. I like being right. I like winning. And it's taken years 
to try to like humble myself with the word that when we talk about it, when we debate these issues of the scripture, my number one goal isn't to be right. My number one goal is what's the truth. And that's not what they're doing here. This is total foolishness. And Jesus in this section throws me for a loop. There's a proverb. I think it's 24, six. Somebody told me in between services. Again, if I was more prepared, I would have written it down, researched it, but I forget sometimes. But there's a proverb that says, answer a fool according to his folly. And then the very next line says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. I like so often flip-flop those. When somebody argues with me and they're like totally just in foolishness, there's no desire of like honest intent. Man, I like just, I, I buy hook, line, and sinker, and I'm in some argument with somebody who doesn't even care about it. Then there are other times when I think it's a foolish question, but they're really being sincere. And I say, I'm not even going to answer that. I got burned last time. <laughs> and in this story, the first guy's your authority. Jesus doesn't respond. Then the second time, he kind of answers. And then this one, this question, this scenario that they're going to pose Jesus is the most foolish of all. Yet he gives the most exhaustive answer. Jesus knows what he's doing. So this is their scenario. They say, oh, there's this rule that Moses wrote about. We don't, we don't really practice this anymore. And this isn't like a real situation that they're struggling with. This is all in the realm of speculation. So now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. In the same way, all seven died leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. This poor lady. Married seven times. No kids. Poor thing. Family lines not continued. They're all dead. I mean, it's kind of like the end of the story. Who cares at this point? They're all dead. <laughs> and that's really, that, that sounded worse than I meant. But it's like, they're dealing with somewhere, like this isn't like they're dealing with this poor widow that's on her seventh husband. She sees that she's not going to have a child with him and she's really torn up, like coming to them like, oh, which one am I going to be married to in heaven? Because I really like numbers one, three, and five, but two, six, and I'm just, you know, like that's not, like they're dealing in total, like this isn't even like a real story. And verse 33, their question, in the resurrection, they don't believe in the resurrection. Their point is against the resurrection. This is an argument that, that Sadducees have, little Sadducees' children as they're going to the bus stop with Pharisees' kids they're arguing, and this is their one silver bullet. This is the story, and none of them can answer the question. They've been stumping Pharisees for years over this one. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. They're like, ching got Jesus. <laughs> Try to get out of this one. We got you. And if I was Jesus, it's a good thing I'm not. Because the whole world would be in trouble. I would have just like, you guys are morons. I'm leaving. Like, I'm not even going to deal with this. But he, like, takes his time here. And in this, you'll see resurrection over and over and over again. And he doesn't shy away from this truth. He makes it very clear that there is a resurrection. And he is about to rise from the dead in days. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are like angels. And the sons of God 
being sons of the resurrection. So first he makes there is a resurrection, guys. In heaven, there's not going to be marriage ceremonies. Like, you're like angels. Here there's marriage. There there's not marriage. But he's not done. Verse 37, but the dead are raised. There is a resurrection of the living and dead. Everybody will rise from the dead. Period. And then he goes on to their one little thing, their veneration of Moses. Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush. Now, why doesn't he say Exodus chapter, I think it's 25 or whatever it is? Because praise the Lord for that French guy that gave us chapters and verses. There was no such thing as chapters and verses before the 1500s. Back then it was like, you guys know that one part in the Bible with the old, the burning bush, that thing? Yeah, yeah, we know where that scroll is. And they'd unwrap their scroll and they'd start reading. They oh yeah, here's the burning bush story. We know right where you're talking about. Where he calls the Lord. Now, everything is like in the present active and like everything that he's about to say, this is his case. All of the people that he mentions to Moses, about Moses, all of these three guys, Abraham, Isaac, did I get it right? Abraham, yeah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three guys at the time of Moses' encounter with God had been dead for a long time. They're dead and decomposing somewhere in the desert. But this is what the word says, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. All live to him. And verse 40 is hilarious. I don't want you guys to miss this. Verse 39, I mean. Some of the scribes, so now you have the scribes, those are the Pharisees, that are listening to Jesus' response. They answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well. So they're listening like, oh, man, we've heard this. We've heard this. We've heard this question a gazillion times. They got him. Like, they don't like the fair. They don't like the Sadducees. They hate the Sadducees. But they hate Jesus even worse. And then, oh, he's stumped. Like, this is one. There's no way he's going to answer this question. Then Jesus answers the question. And they say, verse 39, teacher, you've spoken well. They're like, Yes, he did it! <laughs> Suckers, there is a resurrection! Like, they hate him, but they're stoked that their point was finally validated. Sorry if I woke you guys up. But it's like, it's hilarious! They're sitting there thinking, they got him stumped. We're going to have him arrested right away. We're going to condemn him. There's no way out of this. The scribes and the Pharisees want Jesus condemned. So their enemies, the Sadducees, present this question that's going to stump Jesus. They've been stumping the Pharisees for years. And Jesus nails it. Like if this was diving, there'd be no splash on the entry. This is like, he nailed it. There is a resurrection. We're right. Verse 40. For they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. I love it. We're going to look at Matthew in a second. We're almost done. If you're visiting, don't worry. Like I'm almost, I'm close to, I'm landing this thing. But they like are like, we are done asking this guy questions. Every time we ask him a question, he nails it. There's no way out of this. He is amazing. And Jesus isn't done with them yet. He's ready to keep pushing and prodding to prove his point. And in verse 41, 
He's going to ask them some more questions that they can't answer. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, everybody that's there. He says, how is it that they can say that Christ is David's son? We think, what are you talking about? Like, when do they say that? He says, how does David, King David, who's been dead for a long time now, how does he refer to Adonai, Kyrios in the Greek, Lord? How does he say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how and how is he his son? He asks him this question. See, the Christ is God. Yet David says that the Christ or the Messiah is going to come through his DNA, the Davidic covenant, that the Messiah would come through this earthly line. And I don't want us to miss this, but Jesus is making it absolutely clear. He's showing them that from the scriptures that it was prophesied that the Messiah would come. He would be 100% man and 100% God. And they missed it. But is anybody here willing to raise their hand to say they wouldn't miss it? Man, I can barely wrap my brain around it. Like, this is God's plan. Like, they don't get it. Now, let's go back to Psalm 110. We literally were finishing up here pretty soon here. But you guys know when a pastor says he's done, do you know what that means? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) But I'm really getting close. Just a few more passages. And this this is like the ending of everything. So in Psalm 110, this passage that Jesus asked, like, Jesus asked them this question about this passage. They don't answer. Jesus is going to move on. We covered this psalm last January when we did a little series through the psalms. And so he says, how does David say that, the, that his, his Lord's going to be the Christ? It doesn't make sense. They don't answer to him. But what they're talking about is in Psalm 110, you'll notice the, the inscription at the top. It says it's a psalm of David. That means that David wrote this psalm. And the psalm says the Lord, that's Yahweh, God the Father, says to my Lord. So the God the Father says to my Lord. The Father, Yahweh, says to Adonai, which means Messiah, Christ. In Greek, in the Septuagint, this word is kyrios. Sit at my right hand. So God the Father says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We're going to read this part because it comes up in the New Testament. Melchizedek is like this random priest. That Abraham, like, like I can't tell you, I don't even know how many PhDs in the theological world have been written on Melchizedek. He's this random, like, divine priest that sort of shows up before Abraham, before the law existed, and Abraham gives him a tithe, an offering. And so here the Lord, they're talking about the Messiah, says, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. 
He will shatter kings in the day of wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with the court with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the talk of the Messiah. There's going to be so much power. Turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter, you guys probably have that, 22, verse 41. So this in Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. This is Matthew's account of the very same story that we're looking at in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew wrote, he's a Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience, proving that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that as he came as the Messiah, he fulfilled all of this prophecy. And here is Matthew tells the story. I think it kind of gets it makes it a little bit clearer to us. Verse 41 of Matthew, chapter 22. Now, when the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Okay, so when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, whose kid's he going to be? And their response is the son of David. Now, David had been dead for a long time. But you could be like a great, 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 till I don't even know what count that was, grandson, and you were still considered the son of every male above you. So they're saying that the Messiah is going to come through the Davidic line because of the Davidic covenant. He said to them, then how does David? So, they, so Jesus turns out, okay, so he's from the Davidic line. Then how does David in the spirit? So he says, David, that's writing Psalm 110. This isn't just David's writing. This is the word of God that God inspired him, that God gave him the words to write. How does David in the spirit call him Adonai, Lord, Messiah, how does he say this about his great, great, great grandkid? If he's just a kid, if he's just a human. Saying, the father or Yahweh said to my Adonai, my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies beneath your feet. If David called him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. I love it. Now, how did this passage? See, Jesus said this at the temple uh, on his last day of his earthly ministry. How was this passage used as the early church developed? I'm glad to ask. Please turn to Acts chapter 2. <laughs> so Acts chapter 2. Larry didn't hear the question. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so Peter was here in the temple as Jesus is bringing up Psalm 110. He hears all this. Peter, who had yet, was yet to deny him three times before the rooster crowed. First time I said it. I normally say before the crow crowed. But Peter, who's running for his life, suddenly in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had been crucified, he was buried, he rose again, he walked the earth, appeared to many people for 40 days. He then ascended into heaven, and they were told to go wait in Jerusalem. Ten days later, as they're waiting, the Spirit came upon him, and the foundation of the church happened in Acts chapter 2. At the end of Acts chapter 2, in verse 33, Peter is boldly proclaiming, who Jesus is, and he's going to quote from Psalm 110. And we read, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. What he's talking about is the coming of the Spirit. They thought that the whole church was drunk. But they were preaching the gospel in this language that all of the people that had come from around the world had been able to understand. For it is not David who ascended into heaven. So Peter's saying, I thought David was going to ascend into heaven, but it wasn't David. But he himself says, see, David understood. This is what he said, guys, we messed it all up. David said this, the Lord, the father said to my Adonai, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. Jesus, 10 days earlier, had ascended into heaven. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. You guys missed it. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen would come to faith. Stephen would be the first martyr, the first person to be killed for his faith in Christ. In chapter 7, he goes through the promise of the land in Abraham. In verse 9, the Joseph's coming. He lists all of the prophets all the way through to the 36, 37, disobedience to the law. He has this very long sermon. It was way longer than what I'm doing right now. He gets to David in the Solomon. He goes through the Jewish history. And in verse 51 of chapter 7, he gets to his point. And in verse 51, he reasons very much like Jesus did with the vineyard. And Stephen looks at these Pharisees and these scribes. And he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did. They beat and rejected all of the slaves, which are the prophets that God sent to them. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, they gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Huh? What? This is what Jesus says from Psalm 110. So now he's about to be killed. He looks up into heaven He sees Jesus, the Messiah, at the right hand of the Father, just like David said it would be. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and behold, the son of man, quoting from Daniel chapter seven, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed him with one impulse. When they driven them out of him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This would become Paul, who we're going to look at. Paul was the leader here. Paul was in charge of this killing of Stephen. Paul saw and heard what the sermon that Stephen had just preached at them. By their laying their coats at Saul's feet, it wasn't like he was the low man on the totem pole and he had to watch their jackets. They laid their coats at his feet because he was the one in authority. And he observed them. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. He died. Turn with me to the right. Ephesians chapter 1. This Saul, who they laid the coats out, eventually comes to Christ. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was, he was poised to be one of the top leaders in Israel. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, he writes this to the church. He begins, in him, that's Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him, that's in Christ with this Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he says, man, when I think of your faith, it brings me so much joy. And I won't get on about how pastors feel about their flocks. But I understand this. He says, when I see your faith, man, I have so much joy. And then when I think of you in my prayers, this is what I pray, that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you would really understand and you'd really get it so that you would know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches and the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. This power that is in us, those who believe, Paul wants us to get it. And now this last section of chapter 1, don't forget that the guy writing this is the man Saul who stood watching them stoned to death, Stephen. This wasn't little rocks. They would Each person would be able to pick up a rock as big as they could lift, and they would just drop it bluntly onto his head. And as Stephen is dying, as he looks into heaven, he sees the son sitting at the right hand of the father. That day scarred Paul and stuck with Paul for the rest of his life until he was taken into glory. We see it all through his writings. But I believe that when Paul wrote this, what Stephen said stuck with him. Because he says that he prays of his power towards those who believe. He wants us to get it in our heart how much power is within us. He says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion for Every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the, in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this Paul who stood there as Stephen cried out saying, I see the heavens open. I see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. And Paul wants us to get that. But I confess that when my transmission falls out, I don't feel a lot of that power. <laughs> yeah, car ran out of power, but God. But Paul's praying that we would experience this. And then turn over to Colossians. He continues that this power, like when your transmission falls out or whatever happens, 
when life doesn't go that way and you're feeling defeated, Paul takes the same truth from Psalm 110. And he says in chapter 3 of Colossians verses 1 and 2, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, because Jesus raised from the dead, and in believing in him, you've been sealed with the Spirit, and the same power dwells within us. Keep seeking the things above, because down here is a mess. Our cars break down. I'm going to hold off on my quotes from other stuff. But <laughs> where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See, because Stephen said it, but when Paul got saved, Jesus stepped out of heaven and appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He knows that Jesus is alive. Set your things Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So Paul tells us who are Christians to keep our hope in him, that he's at the right hand of the Father. He's no longer on the cross. He is raised. And we who've trusted have that same power. And we're going to close in Hebrews chapter 4. Like, this is the real close. This is the real. This is really. I really, really mean it this time. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, or verse 14, the author of Hebrews knew the Old Testament, and we're going to cover the last part of Psalm 110 about Melchizedek. So here the author writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. If you've got struggles, call out to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. He knows. He understands. He can sympathize with your struggles. But he was without sin. Therefore, verse 16, let us draw near with a confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. See, we can enter into God's presence. Jesus on the cross last week when he died, the veil was torn. The holiest of holies that was restricted for people. Only a number of people could go in there with great restriction. That veil was torn because now through Christ we have access. Then chapter 5 verse 1 he goes on to say, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weaknesses. Every priest, every pastor, none of us are perfect. I'm not some guy that has it mastered. I'm in the trenches with you. Like there's nothing special about pastors and that we're super duper spiritual or anything like that. And he, the author of Hebrews says that he's just a man. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people. So also for himself, for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Verse five, the point. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, here it is, Psalm 110. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I'm sorry, it's a little bit lower. Just as he said in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from things which he had suffered. 
And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is God. And when I look at this passage, I'm sorry for going over. I don't normally go this long. This whole power is about Jesus's divine authority. He made no sidesteps about it. He boldly put it in their face that he was the Messiah. He conquered death. And in Luke chapter 20, what I see is there is a great consequence for rejecting him. And if you're here today and you are not sure if you've trusted in Christ, I would urge you to pray to him and to seek him and to consider where you stand with him. If you have doubts, that's okay. If you have questions, that's okay. I've stocked up the case for Christ. Last week, we everything went. We provide the case for Christ for free so that you can investigate the claims of Christ and the substance of the evidence in his favor. And all week, I'm reading this passage, and I get it. Like I understand what it says. But every week, I wrestle with the so what. So what does this mean to me? Like, what's the application here? I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a scribe. I'm not a Sadducee. But the bottom line is I'm a person that resists God's authority in my life. You might be resisting from salvation. If you're a Christian, you could be resisting him all sorts of other ways. You could profess him as Lord, yet you could be rejecting him or resisting him when it comes to his authority in your life, the authorities that he's placed over you, whether it's your employee, the government, your parents, Whoever, you could be resisting in areas of purity, areas of your money. You say, oh, I trust you for salvation, but I'm not going to trust you for obedience and all of the other stuff. You might be apathetic to the things of the word. There's serious consequences, and he's revealed this to us so that we would know him and that we'd be able to walk with him. He's not trying to kill our fun. He's trying to show you how to truly have peace and contentment and joy. I didn't know how to have fun until I was a Christian. It's so awesome waking up and not being miserable. Finding receipts that I don't know came from where. That's a whole other story and I'm over. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that he not only came, but that he clearly demonstrated to the world that he was God, that after his crucifixion, that he appeared to many, he let people touch him. As Paul says, that he appeared to all of the apostles, as many as 500 or more people, Lord, that there is evidence that supports that he is indeed the Messiah. And Father, we come before you and we, con- we confess our propensity to rebel against you, Whether we haven't trusted you for salvation, Lord, I pray that you would help us to connect the dots for salvation. For those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, I pray that, um, Lord, you would help us to walk with you faithfully and obediently, Lord. I long for the day that I die to hear your voice, to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, I thank you for everyone here being patient with me going a little bit long today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.